Well, good morning, Grace. Very scattered. Um, this is a very unusual set of circumstances and a first for Grace and a first for a lot of churches in America. We had, uh, we, we had a meeting on Thursday, uh, a dinner and then an extended meeting with all the pastors and ministers and all the elders. And we came up with a couple of wonderful plans on how to get uh, through the next two weeks, counting this one. Uh, so on Thursday night, you know, around nine o'clock, it was ready to go. By Friday morning at nine o'clock, none of that mattered. Everything had changed. And so we are realizing that we can only make plans in the moment and we'll continue to keep you posted on what we'll be doing next and how we'll be doing it. But we're grateful that we have the technology available to bring you our worship time together, uh, at least our learning time together today in your living room. And I, one of the opportunities it does bring to us is as a church, we can still be a family scattered, but we, you get to be a family united in your living rooms. If you have a family and you, you can now go to church together, you can all sit in front of the TV set and watch the learning time together. We'll work on how we can get worship applied to our, our broadcast next week and the weeks to come, but it's giving us a new opportunity, a new experience. At Grace Covenant Church, we believe that every believer is a minister, and we're looking at this as a great opportunity for everyone to be a minister amongst the people that are around. God puts you here for this time and this place for this very purpose, to care for other people and to bring them the love of Christ and, and the comfort of his sovereignty, even in this time. So let's be ministers to the members that live under our roof, uh, to people in our neighborhood, to people that we have contact with, let's be especially aware of people that might have special needs because maybe they're older or they're alone and how we might be able to serve them. And we'll continue to work on that as a church family. But again, at Grace, we've always believed that every believer is a minister and we want to look for an opportunity to do ministry. Jesus said before he left, he said, I leave you my peace. This is the peace I give you, not the peace of the world that the world has that's fragile and volatile, but this resounding peace that is resting in the sovereignty of God. So let's keep that in mind as we venture forward in whatever is next. The president said that uh, today, Sunday, is a national day of prayer about this circumstance that we find ourselves in. So before we start our learning time together, let's, let's acknowledge that, the Church United praying together. Lord, we uh, do lift up, up this, this global event, this illness, this virus that's taking over all of our thoughts in many respects and certainly some of the decisions that we make throughout the day. Lord, I'd ask that you would calm us and make your spirit obvious and present in our lives. And in that calmness, we might be able to look out and focus on how we could serve and care for those around us. Lord, give us insight. Give us uh, imaginations on how we can look for ways to bring your, your love and caring to the faces that we encounter throughout this experience. Lord, we'd ask that you would continue to guide uh, the leaders and, and the medical personnel that are involved in this, that they might find a way out, that loss of life would be limited and even illness would be curtailed. So we look forward to seeing the answers to these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we're going to be doing communion today. One of the reasons we were dedicated to doing today's learning time was the idea of having communion together as a church all over the city of Austin. I hope you uh, were notified that uh, through our Realm accounts anyway that you received an email or watched that we were going to do communion. If you'll have communion elements available to you and whoever you're with, that would be great. We, one of our big plans is we had already ordered the self-contained communion thingies and they didn't come in time and so we ordered another set. So we have 3,000 of these waiting for us. maybe for some other time. They're apparently dreadful. So <laughs> anyway, if you'll have that available, we'll be starting that in just a few minutes. We're looking through a survey of the Bible and we're looking at, in many respects, salvation history. This is God's plan to save humanity for all those that would answer his call. And in the story so far, we find that at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph has gone to Egypt and now 72 of his family members, the sons of Abraham, are in Egypt. And when you look open the book of Exodus, it's 400 years later. And now those 72 have become two to three million uh, children of God. And it's time to leave. It's time to go back to the promised land. Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 has this ominous sentence that introduces this Exodus story. And there arose a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. And he said to his leaders... The masses of these Hebrews are a threat to our national security, and so we must enslave them. We must control them. But even the enslavement was not working. The population continued to grow, which meant there was still a greater threat to at least this pharaoh and to the nation of Egypt. And so the pharaoh decreed and made a law that all the sons of Israel upon their birth would be destroyed. The children, the boys, would be thrown into the Nile River on their birthday. God saw this and grieved. He saw the misery and he saw this death and said, I'll do something about that. And he raises up Moses to be an instrument of this uh, salvation. And he tells him the future plan that will be taking place. And he tells him that plan in chapter 4 of Exodus. It's important that we all know this going in. He says to Moses, look, I'm going to go and send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to do uh, miraculous and powerful expressions of, of my sovereignty against the gods of Egypt. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he does not let the people go so that people can see the extent of my power. And then it goes this. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son. Those babies. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. So before it even starts, it's about whose son will survive this. This is about justice. It's about making things right. Now, when we study this section of scripture, you'll see multiple times it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And I felt like it, was inter- it would be necessary to at least try to explain that. First of all, in the phrase hardening Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh does most of the hardening, as you read through. It says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then on the sixth plague, God intervenes and says, God 
hardened Pharaoh's heart. And while it would look as though God is actually uh, uh, contrasting the will of Pharaoh, it is not that. It's actually encouraging the will of Pharaoh. Let me try to explain. Just last month, the World Boxing Heavyweight Championship was fought again. It was the Wilder versus Fury fight. Some of you might know about that battle. And Wilder was the, the ruling heavyweight champion. He, his win record is, is astounding. Of the last 42 victories, 41 were knockout punches. He defended that, this title 10 times. And this was the second time he fought Fury. But this one didn't go like the others. As a matter of fact, on the third round, Wilder was knocked to the canvas. The first time he'd been knocked down in 10 years. And it happened again and again. And then finally, in the seventh round, his trainer threw in the towel to protect him from permanent injury. This is the way that Wilder responded to it. He said, I will fire that trainer because I would rather die in the ring than have someone throw in the towel. I am a warrior. Wow. <laughs> so when he became too weak to fight, his trainer stopped the fight. That's somewhat like what's happening with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is saying, oh, it's the sixth round and I'm becoming too weak to fight. It is as though he asks Yahweh, will you harden my heart so I can make it all 10 rounds? I want to make it to the end of these plagues and I'm growing weak. I'm growing cowardly. Will you harden my heart? And Yahweh says, I will. I can do that. When, when Pharaoh hears Moses say, let my people go, he says, he answers in this way, very sarcastic. He says, who is Yahweh that I would obey, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And besides, I will not let his people Israel go. So therein is the introduction of the 10 plagues. Each of these plagues are introducing Yahweh himself, who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice. And with each one of these plagues, it's an attack, it's an assault on one of the gods of Egypt. It's an epic story. People are still making it into a movie this very day. This is, and the nine plagues that precede the tenth, they're nothing more than an inconvenience compared to the tenth plague. The tenth plague is announced from, from Moses to Pharaoh in the eleventh chapter of Exodus. Let me read it for you. And Moses said, this is what Yahweh says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn son of Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh that sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is in the hand, uh, who is in the hand mill. And all of the firstborn cattle will die as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been before and will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark, not an animal will be lost. Then you will know that Yahweh makes a distinction, that word is redemption, between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and begging, go, go. Will you all go and everyone that follows you, please leave. That was the decree. The last sentence says, and then Moses left Pharaoh and it says, hot with anger. 
Now, after this has been stated to Pharaoh, there is some time of preparation. And during that time of preparation, God further expresses his justice in this story in that he has the Israelis go to their Egyptian friends and ask for gold and silver. And the passage says, and the Lord gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians and the leaders of Egypt so that they might be generous towards the Israelis. And, and people ask, why, why did that take place? Why was that necessary? First is, it is a matter, it's an issue of justice and they are settling accounts. This is back pay for services previously provided while they were in slavery. And the second uh, point of, of loading up Israel with, with wealth before they leave town is this. Uh, scholar writes this. The Israelite march out of Egypt was through the front door with dignity like God's people. This is an exaltation of Israel still another time at the humiliation of Egypt. So now we're in Exodus chapter 12. This is a turning point in all of human history. This is the introduction to the nation of Israel. This is Israel's birthday. It is required to Israel to change their calendars to mark this birthday. And so in Genesis, Exodus chapter 12, it says, from now on, this is month one, day one of year one. This is your birthday. This is how Israel is born out of Egypt. And God says through Moses, listen to this carefully. Follow these instructions. As a matter of fact, he states it two times. He says, Yahweh will come through Egypt with the destroyer and every life of every firstborn male that's a mammal will be lost. Justice is coming to Egypt. And so this is what you're to do. On the 10th day of the month, on the 10th day of this first month, the head of the household is to go and take uh, and find a male lamb that's one year old. That lamb cannot be without spot or blemish. It has to be perfect. On the 14th day of the month, four days with this lamb living with you, you are to slaughter that lamb, cut its throat at twilight, drain the blood into a bowl, take that blood, go outside the outside door frame and rub that blood on the door. Put it on the top, put it on the two sides. Make it a painting. Cover the the frame of the door. Paint it in blood just to do that. And then go back inside. And then never leave until you're told to. Don't go back outside. If you go back outside, you'll die. While you're inside, take that lamb and cook the lamb over an open fire. Do not quarter that lamb. It must be cooked in its entirely. Don't break a bone on that on that lamb. Cook it over an open fire. This is the menu. This roasted lamb with bitter herbs. I want you to eat bitter lettuce to help you remember the bitterness of the slavery that you experienced in Egypt. This this event is called Passover. It will be a memorial service that they have every year this time on their birthday. 
In addition to the roasted lamb and the bitter herbs, they're also to eat what's called unleavened bread. That means dough that hasn't had yeast added to it because if you add yeast to the dough, it takes too much time for it to rise and then cook. So you don't add that. It's unleavened, unyeasted uh, bread because you're in a hurry. That's kind of the last part is, is you, you cook this meal and then you eat this meal quickly. If there's any leftover lamb, you're to burn everything. And then you're, to, you're supposed to eat this with this dress code in mind. You wear your running shoes. You wear your hiking boots. You bring your hiking staff. You, you know, pull up your dress and tuck it into your belt. We're leaving soon. When the command is given, we got to go. That's why there's no time even for this bread to, to rise. Why? You stop and think about this. This strange meal that is ordered by Moses to, from God. This meal. Why do this meal? It doesn't make sense. I'm taking questions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, why are we doing this? What does this have to do with the angel of death, the destroyer? You know, it doesn't. The, the answer is I'm not taking questions. Just just do this. <laughs> you don't have to understand it. You don't have to you don't have to, you know, have words from God about it, it has to make sense to you. If you don't do this, you'll die. If you do, you might live. Let's see what happens. And so on that day, chapter 12, verse 12 and 13, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment, see justice, on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign. Remember that the blood will be a sign for you on your house, on your houses where you are. And, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The destructive plague will not touch you when I strike Egypt. And so what happens? The clock strikes midnight. I mean, you can just imagine this, you know, <laughs> gong, gong, gong. Everyone's waiting. They did what they were told. What would that be like that night? Everyone wondering. Did we do everything according to the instructions? But even more, like, will it work? Parents all around Egypt are screaming like they have never heard before. And they have, the Israelis, they, they've put blood on the door and they cooked that lamb and they, and they had the herbs and they, and, they cook, and they ate the bread. But will that be enough to stop this from happening? Maybe even the outside doors rattle a little bit. Think about this. Who in the room is a firstborn male? Just like raise your hand. Who's a firstborn male in your family? Do some of your ladies have a firstborn brother? Is your father a firstborn male? Because if his life was taken, you wouldn't exist. Firstborn males, everyone's wondering if they're going to be part of this justice. And in Israel, not a dog moved, not even whimpered. So the men were holding the wives, the wives were holding their son, the son was holding their sister, and everybody's waiting. Here's what happens in the story. Exodus 12, 29 says this, And on mid at midnight Yahweh struck down the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoners who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all of Egypt got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt and there was not a house without someone who was dead. 
But in Israel, it worked. It worked everywhere, anyone, even Egyptian families, if they took that blood, if they did what Moses told them to do, and they found out through a friend maybe to wipe that blood on that door jam and eat that meal the way they were supposed to, the Lord's judgment passed over them and they did not experience that. When that, might, when, when that night had come to fruition, Pharaoh and his officials called Moses and Aaron in and said, get out, we're done, you win. Could you please bless me before you go? Could you have Yahweh bless me? <laughs> That's how that story ends. We look back at this event and we think, well, sure, of course. But when you read the story, you have to keep in mind, this is the first time it's happened. Why? Like, not just how did this work, but why did this work? Why, why this somewhat strange rituals to fight off this plague? And I would even say that this plague is not like the other plagues. It's not really like a plague because those other plagues and the traditional plagues are, are acts of nature, right? Some kind of violent act of nature that's taking place. And many of the nine plagues were that way. This plague, this is an outside agent from God that's called sometimes in some translations the destroyer, sometimes the death angel. And without noise or effort, whatever it touches, it kills. It just destroys them. And then again, look at the storyline. Take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb. That'll keep you safe. Now, I looked up on Google, okay? What are the most popular names of lambs? They're Snowy, Daisy, and Snowball. So, the destroyer's coming, the death angel. That's okay. We've got Snowball. Come on, Snowball. I mean, that's like trying to, I don't know, alter the direction of a hurricane with a feather duster. I got this. This is going to work just fine. The reason this is happening and the, the why of this, uh, of, of this ritual called Passover, is because this is early in the story of human salvation. And in this, we're learning the fundamentals of, of spiritual truths. This, this story is teaching us, in, in a visual way, the physics of our soul. It is vivid. It is a vivid description of the economy of sin. That's what this lesson is trying to teach us. These are the laws, the spiritual laws of life. And here they are. One, sin costs death. Sin costs death. Now, not all sins are equal, but any sin has a price tag attached to it. And that is death. And it's sometimes hard for us to grasp that because we're living here. <laughs> on this place, in this place that is saturated by sin. And we always, we're, we're thinking relative sin and it's, we're not as bad. But I love C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, because he takes a little day trip to heaven. And in that experience, he gets to see what it's like to be in a place of absolute perfection, of holiness, of purity. And it's and it's not diluted in any way. And so he gets there in, in his fallen state. He gets to take a day trip there and he finds that the air that he breathes is holiness. And while it's sweet to those who can live there to him, it is harsh and causing burning in his throat and lungs. The, the things that he sees is in, he's been told, in colors that are unimaginable, in a state of vividness that is inexplicable. 
But to him, it's black and white. It's kind of hazy. His view is not what other unfallen people's view is. And the food, the meal, that meal, that special meal with the king, everyone that belongs in heaven, they get to enjoy the fullness of of the taste and the smell. But to him, in a fallen state, it is like gargling acid. He can't tolerate it. And while he tries to take a, a, a fading glance at the reflection of God Almighty, he fears that it could evaporate him. And those that are citizens of heaven can gaze at their king without even blinking. And he finds that this is no place for him. And he longs to go back to heaven, on, to earth. And on earth, he realizes that his petty sins that he considered petty before, and how about the real sin of pride? Now he sees it in contrast to what ought to be and realizes, yes, sin deserves death. When we the closer we approach the holiness of God, the more we realize the debt we owe. And that debt is death. Part one is sin costs death. And the second lesson of the physics of the spiritual world is the sin or the justice is certain. God has to be just. He's required to be just because he's God. He's required to be just because the love of God compels him to be just. He cannot be a loving God unless he is fair unless he makes this justice true. Now, in this story particularly, we find out this thing that we wouldn't know otherwise, and that is that blood satisfies justice. That's the whole point, that blood satisfies justice. The plague of justice is going door to door. And remember, he said, put the blood on the door jam, and that will be a sign. And what does the sign say to the destroyer, the angel of death? What is it saying? It says, it says a life has already been taken here. This debt has already been paid. There's been a substitution made. Pass on. Keep moving. It's taken care of. It's not because the people were good, mind you. It's because there was a substitute that was used and that lamb was slaughtered so that they wouldn't have to be. It's not about, it's not about being good. It's about paying the debt. Sin costs death. Justice is certain and, and blood satisfies this justice. And what this is showing us, this storyline, is that it's, it's pointing to something more. Because God institutes this, this, um, uh, this ritual that takes place every year, the Passover. And the point of the Passover is every year they practice this. Because every year they have to be reminded that if this one-year-old innocent lamb doesn't die, then we will. But they have to keep repeating it. Because a lamb can't cover the sins of a man. They're going to need a better lamb. They're going to need the lamb. And no less than 30 times is Jesus, the Messiah, in the New Testament called the Lamb of God. He's called the Lamb of God because he is the Lamb that is pictured in this story that we've been reading together of Passover. If you look at Jesus' life and particularly his death, look, there, there's, in the Passover we have the blood. It's on the two sides and up over the doorpost, right? And no, no 
more than likely, like that blood dripped down and there were some at the bottom. His crucifixion has blood on each side, his crown of thorns at the top, and his pierced feet at the bottom. He's, he's that lamb taken in the prime of his life without sin or blemish or spot. And not a bone was broken. Remember the, the Roman guards wanted to break one of the bones. No, no, no. He has to be whole, just like the Passover lamb was. That's why John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, introduces Jesus as, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He who has no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the substitute. That's the story. But while we understand these four principles, the fifth one is most important. You must choose by faith to trust that Jesus' blood satisfies justice. You have to believe that his death and resurrection is proof that all your debt to the Father is paid. All of it, completely. You have to choose. Look, let's go back to the story itself. If, if you were informed by Moses that you had to take that lamb and, you, and, and cut the lamb and right, put the, door, the blood on the door, eat the, the bitter herbs, eat the unleavened bread, pack like you're going to run. Okay, you knew all those things. Maybe you teach a class on it. Maybe you become an expert at it. Yeah, that's it. You have a PhD in all things Passover, but you don't do it. If you don't do it, you die. You have to choose to act on what was clearly an expression of faith in that first event. I don't understand how it works. I don't see that it could work, but I will do that. I will put all of my faith in this lamb posting a sign so the death angel of justice would pass. Right. You have to put your faith there. A lover says, I love you. Will you marry me? You have to answer. You have to stand before friends and family and say your vows to enter that covenant. You have to do something. The story of the Bible we're going to see is a story of thousands of years of a lover pursuing his beloved. God loves you. He's asking you, will you marry me? You have to answer. You have to choose. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. Knock, knock. You have to answer the door. You have to let him in. If you've never done that, or maybe you don't fully, haven't fully appreciated what was taking place in the spiritual world that you didn't understand the physics or the economy of your soul and sin, today you could do that. Today you could decide, this is the day. I'm not hoping in good works. I'm not putting faith in uh, my, my, my chivalry. I give up on that. I need a substitute. I need grace to transform my soul. The death of the Lamb of God, the resurrection that proved that he is the lion that, he was, that was promised. That's what the invitation and application is for today, at least right now. If you've never done that, do it today. In these strange circumstances, why not? Why not? Jesus is the Passover lamb. It's so obvious that in the last Passover, Jesus is leading the Passover. And, and he takes the bread and he says, no, 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 no. This unleavened bread that over the years becomes symbolic of without sin, this bread without sin. He says, I am 
this bread. This is my body. And this will be broken for you so that you don't have to be. It is a physical, visual expression of what takes place to your soul. And I will be going through that. My soul will be going through that. But you don't have to. Take this, all of you, and eat it. He did that that night. So I'm going to do that. Take that if you're in your room right now. We can pray with gratitude. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you died so that we wouldn't have to. You lived the perfect life because we couldn't. And now we receive that. We receive that as a gift. And let your blood be on our, the, the, the doorframe of our soul so that justice passes over and finds you on that cross. We're grateful, Lord, in Jesus' name. He Later on, he took the cup and he said, I'm making a new covenant. We'll learn more about the old covenant next week. He says, now this is the new covenant and this blood is that blood that will be shed. This everlasting, unrelenting, immutable, unchangeable covenant of grace. He said, take this and drink. So let's do that. Many of you know the, the outline of the Lord's table, the Passover that he's taken over and said, no, 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 this, is, this has all been leading up to me. I'm the Lamb of God. You've probably heard it. You might have read it multiple times. It's in two or three places in the Bible. Do you notice what's missing in this meal? In the story of the meal? There's no story of lamb. There's no time. He never holds up the lamb and says, uh, because he is the lamb. He doesn't talk about this, <laughs> this clue, <laughs> this mammal with four legs. It doesn't come up in the, in the Passover meal, the Lord's table, because the lamb is there. The fulfillment of all those years. That's what the story is about. The Lord's table, he says, do this. And whenever you break this bread and drink this cup, do this in memory of me, in remembrance of me until I come in glory. And so the, the Lord's table, the communion table is a beautiful, another expression of the Passover where it focuses on the past, the Passover itself, on the presence where we are right now, living by faith, that Jesus' blood that's wiped on our doorframe is is adequate to satisfy the justice of God. And then future, the future banquet, that meal that we'll have with the king. That's what this does. And so we're to practice this regularly so that we might be reminded that our faith is in that lamb of God. That's the story of the Exodus. And that's where many people shut the book and say, we're done. But the Exodus continues. In Exodus chapter 13, all of Israel is pushed out of Egypt <laughs> with their wallets full of Egyptian gold and silver. And when they get just outside the city limits, Moses stops everyone and they have a dedication service. Look what it says in Exodus chapter 13 in the very first verse. And Yahweh said to Moses, Consecrate your, to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites that, that belongs to me, whether, whether man, man or animal. Do you, see, do you see what he's done? 
He's ever, as soon as he gets safe right outside the city limits, he says, okay, let's stop all the firstborn males, all of them, the cows, the sheep, the goats, the humans, you come up here and they consecrate them, which meant all the mammals died. They gave them up as sacrifices. And then they turn to the humans and say, why are you alive? How come you're even here? It makes them stop and pause. And they start to, and the idea here is, is this belongs to me. This all belongs to me. And from that point on, every firstborn in any context of livestock and the firstborn males were dedicated to the Lord. He owns them. I am the father of the firstborn. And one of the things that happens in a person's life when they experience, this is like a near-death experience, right? They go through this, this last plague, this 10th plague. They get out of town. They, we, we made it. And then they stop and ponder, why? Why did I get to live, right? People with near-death experiences, and we'll see more about that as the campaign starts throughout the city of Austin. Many of you have had that experience. Some of you know people that have, have nearly lost their life and come back from death. They share at least three positive attributes when they come through that. One, the first one is, is humility. When a person dies or they should have died in some event and they've got enough time to pause and think about that, they come back and they say, you know what? I'm so grateful to be I'm here. They, sometimes they have guilt. It's called survivor's guilt. It's way past I feel lucky. It's this feeling of destiny. I must, I must have been saved for a purpose. And so they just have an attitude of humility that sometimes can't happen until that close call. The second attribute of people that are outside the city limits that are standing in front of Moses saying, why should I be here? Or other people that understand that they should have died on the cross is their generosity. Now they have a whole different way of keeping score. It's not about collecting. It's about giving. It's not about getting. It's about distributing it with everything. Some things that were once precious to them. Oh, you can have this. No, no, no. I just I, I don't care about that sort of thing anymore. They give, they give themselves, they give their time, they give their energy and their talents. They're generous with that. They give their resources. They, they want to share because they realize that this life is so brief and everything from that day where they were supposed to lose their life on, that's just borrowed time and they don't need to collect. They need to distribute. So it's not just humility and generosity, but the third attribute of people that know where they should have been, but God's grace saved them is gratitude, gratitude. They are thankful for everything. Sunrises change, the baby that giggles, all things around them. They find themselves chasing butterflies that they considered a nuisance before. In the Bible, from pretty much the beginning to the end, a symptom of a sick soul is ingratitude and they did not give thanks. And the Bible also says the sign of a healthy soul, if they do you take the temperature of a person that understands that they are saved by grace, that they have been passed over because there's been a substitute, those people, they are overwhelmed. They are thankful. They are grateful. They are humble and they are generous. So they're the walking dead. They should have died, but they lived. 
And in the context of our culture right now, let's be a church that does that, that has these attributes of humility and generosity and gratitude. And let's make sure it smells sweet enough for everyone around us to enjoy it. And when they ask, be bold and courageous. Tell them why. That you were bought with a price. And it's no longer you who live, but Christ that lives within you. Another passage says, therefore, honor God with your body. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You've been bought with a price. Do not become slaves to men. We have that freedom. We've been passed over. Let's pray in gratitude, in humility, in generosity for what God has given to us as we experience the Passover. Lord, we are, we are grateful. We are humbled. And Lord, I help, I'd ask that we would be generous as well, that we would find ourselves in that desert, a firstborn wondering, why did I survive? Oh, that's right. The lamb of God lost his life, gave his life so that I might live. Lord, I'd ask that this church, as we are in this very unusual set of circumstances, could bring those attributes of being born again into every relationship that we encounter. Would you help us do that? Would you give us time in the morning, in the midday, in the evening to reflect and to regenerate on the truths that we heard today? We would see people as spiritual beings, desperately, some of them in fear, that we might bring the peace of Jesus Christ, not of this world, but the peace that transcends all comprehension into those people's lives that we might bless them. Lord, I'd ask that a wonderful revival could take place across our country, across our globe, because people are realizing their, their frailty. Lord, let the church rise up to this occasion. Let us be part of that, of that revival. God bless our church, bless our lives that we might that we might give back and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.